0: Logical Progression, Year 3, Chapter 9, Lesson 6 Bismillah rahman rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen As-salatu wa s ala rasooli al-kareem ala nabiyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een Allahumma sahla illa ma wa sahla wa andatajalul hazna, Ida shaita sahla Allahumma a'inna ala wa shukrika ya karim Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Mayakumullah wa bless you. wa two quick announcements actually. Um, maybe not so much for the online folks, but for the local folks. There's two things. Um, number one, I think it was at the beginning of year two, or maybe at the end of year one, there was a Libyan brother who was collecting some money. Um, for um, it was for I think it was to buy some prosthetic limbs I can't remember was it prosthetic limbs or was it the was it the uh, wheelchair or something Allah I've forgotten the details anyway but that brother his name was Sami and he used to come he used to come quite regularly to this masjid it quite, you know, built kind of uh, uh, Libyan and he had uh, he had a limp and he used to use a, uh, he used to use a, like a, a walking stick as well so i I just told by Sheikh, I was just told by Sheikh alfar that he passed away uh last week. He used to come to this circle. Uh, he hasn't been here for a long time. He moved to Libya. apparently he had an accident um and he was in a coma for three months. He's a British citizen, but they he stayed there <coughs> he stayed there so he passed away um It's very really sad. The second thing is. Um, as you had the reminder from Sheikh uh, Salim um, about the situation in Syria and the use of chemical weapons, and uh, actually, to be honest, the, the chlorine has continually be used, continuously been used in the last two years or one and a half years since Ghouta, since Ghouta when it really came out, but since then they carried on. And uh, you've seen actually that uh, if anyone saw the Jeremy Bowen interview with. Bashar al-Assad, then you've seen that he's now as strong as he ever was and he's very confident and, uh, you know, he's gone back to that kind of, uh, he's gone back to that thing. So it's very important that, you know, again, just to add my voice to what he said, that the Syrian, the Syrian situation is moving into, I don't know how many years now, 50 years or whatever, it's, you know, a ridiculous blight on our own personal histories it's now easily moved into the greatest disaster we'll ever see in our lifetimes in our generation so um, and his point Sheikh Slim's point that uh, there are many concerns of the Ummah many many concerns and all of them require time and talking about and support but the Syrian one is something which is above and beyond all forms of comparison and it is the blessed land it is the prophetic land and it is a prophetic fight This person is the jal and the believers are on the other side. And so it's very, very important that we keep that that, that in mind. And to that effect, um, I wanted to uh, do a collection for the second half of what Sheikh Salim will be collecting for. You heard what he's collecting for. Sheikh Salim works with a number of charities. He's also the one who set up um, Syria Relief, or helped set up Syria Relief, which does its own thing. And this one for the education is very important. You know, a lot of us, were, uh, and just, this is one of the things I'm teaching, I'm relaunching my class in London uh, this this Friday, Pure Pesa. A lot of people think that it's just about the fiqh of halal and haram to do with jobs and money and this and that. But also we'll be spending a lot of time discussing is just how poor our understanding of money and charity is. We have a very restricted understanding of charity. So, you know, like, if, if, uh, if, after describing the horrors of chemical warfare, the next thing to naturally say is that we want money for the children who have been affected. We want money for the food. To, you know, And that, that pulls on the right kind of string on the heart, and people give. And the reason for that is because we are a very emotive people and a superficial people, and also ignorant when it comes to our understanding of sadaqah. It has to be disaster-related. It has to be physically... Oh, it has to be very I don't know, what's the I don't know what the word is, but has to be you know, there has to be some kind of graphic nature or some dramatic nature of the appeal. And one of the things which I like about Sheikh Salim, he's my longtime friend and he is a person I will support for as long as I possibly can, is because he's a visionary and a person who understands the importance of charity in the right place. So, you know, when he is talking about chemical weapons, then he suddenly he says that we should uh, uh rethink and rebuild, which is that that part of the charity that he's working on, which is to even in the middle of warfare to keep focus on education, this is not what the normal mind thinks of. And it's these are the people who build the future. And it's essential that we show that kind of support, education for children who will then become people who will then carry on this struggle people who understand the system, understand the rules and whatever. Education is so underrated, you know, that when you, when, you, when you look at anyone who works for charities, you'll see that they struggle to get money for work projects, putting women back into work, putting kids back into school, but they're flooded with emergency flour, emergency water, emergency this, because we are a reactive people, emergency, 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 and we are very, very uh, poor in the proactive part, where we see a problem and then we start to rebuild quickly. Investing in people. You can't invest in anything better than people. Investing in people is worth you. And subhanAllah so much. So anyway. For those folks here. I will personally be taking those collections. um, Cash collections. This week and next week. And the week after. um, Whilst I am still here. um, For Syria. Anyone who wants to send it. Then they can send it. Online. You'll have to get it someone. should the masjid. Because I'm not going to get involved uh, in any uh, financial transfers or anything like that. Inshallah, we can. Uh, I'm, I'm very confident that five thousand of that sum of money that he needs, we can cover just within ourselves easily. Inshallah, in the next couple of weeks. Okay. So, um, with respect to the text, with respect to the text, the good news is, MashaAllah, that our dad has come on strong. She's back on the game. It's very important to be honest very important that I, I know where I am because i I don't have a clue where I am unless I read that statement this is where you are that's the best yani so anyway, Alhamdulillah, I know exactly where we are We are in the was the uh, Shaz, let me read out the uh let me read out the uh, thing um so we are on the the statement that that Ghusl is obligated. Uh, we've gone past that, haven't we? No, we haven't. Yeah, okay. And so uh, ghusl is obli- No, we've done this, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. So whoever is obligated to make ghusl is also prohibited from reciting the Quran. Okay? So whoever is obligated to make ghusl is also prohibited from reciting the Quran. Uh, they are allowed, though, to pass through the mosque if there is a need, but they cannot remain therein without wudu'l that is what we're going to be doing uh, we're going to be completing this inshallah today okay uh, so um, the point that we got to yesterday that last week we were talking about you know the the menstruation and uh, and and so on and so forth and um we just have one further issue to cover which is on page 350 of of uh, ash which is that what about the uh, non muslim the non-Muslim, he wants to recite Qur'an, okay? So this is what we're talking about, yes? He wants to recite Qur'an. Do we make him uh, 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 the new Muslim, he's non-Muslim, he becomes Muslim and he wants to recite Qur'an. Now we covered a couple of weeks back whether the new Muslim, he has to make ghusl or not. Remember? Yes? Does the new Muslim need to make ghusl or not? What did we say? Anyone can remember? Excellent. Yeah, you'd look at the situation, you'd kind of weigh up, you know, the scenario, and if you're in a masjid then he makes, you know, takes shahada, and we're going to say, okay, and it's prayer time, we'll say, per normal, as per normal, just make wudu, copy us, da-da-da-da, and pray, and khalas. You're not going to say to the guy, right, listen, into the tablighi showers, you know, and just, you know, have a quick shower and stuff. That's a mission, man. Yeah, so... Uh, but but if we're in control of this scenario, he's my friend. I want to go to the mosque and you know take shahada and stuff like that. Then you know if you can make ghusl and maybe even take shahada with you, which is even better, right? And then take the ghusl and then come in with us uh, to the masjid. Then even better. So if you're in control of the situation, then do so. But if you're not in control and like it's a bit kind of achanak, yeah, a bit kind of you know. Of the of the whatever it is, yeah, then then you know it's it's not a problem. So that's what our position was. But let's just carry on and imagine that we didn't cover that before. So it's revisiting the issue again. So uh, according to the madhab, of course, ممن يَلْزَمُهُ الْغُسْلُ فَلَوْ أَسْلَمَ وَأَرَادَ حَتَّى يغتصر. The position of the madhab is clear. The one, the non-Muslim, when he becomes Muslim, he has to make ghusl. So, if he becomes Muslim and he wants to recite, he has to make ghusl anyway. And what was the dalil for that? The dalil is qiyas and al junub. The reason they're going to make this non-Muslim make ghusl is they're making an analogy, analogizing him with someone who is junub. Okay. I don't need to keep translating that word. You know okay, I just kept saying junub and nascent. Now, okay, I've said it so many times now. I'm sick to death. I don't think any class has ever had that word used, yeah, ever, as much as this class. Okay, don't wear the s word, yeah. And that's how how I feel about it now. I'm so sensitive to the whole thing. It's <laughs> killing me, right? So that's their evidence, Yani, that the junub is in a kan. He has to re- he has to make wudu before he can recite the Quran. So the new Muslims should as well. Shaykh says, He goes, Man, there's a lot to say about this. Don't know about that. Yeah? He goes, ulama, he said, they اتَّفَقُوا They have consensus that you have to, that the junub has to make a ghusl before he can recite. Whereas they differed over whether the, the, the new Muslim uh, does, even has to make ghusl or not. Yeah, and you've got, you're have got you comparing like apples and pears, basically. Or apples and oranges. I don't know what, they, what, what they're comparing these days. Is it apples and pears or apples and oranges? The one guy you've got, he is a, 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 Junub. Every single scholar on the, on the face of the planet basically basically, said that he has to make ghusl before he recites the Quran. As for the new Muslim, major difference of opinion. You saw the Hanbali say that he has to. We ourselves said that he doesn't have to. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, clear, it's clear. For... He goes, you can't therefore make an analogy between something which is fully agreed upon versus something which there's a difference of opinion over. And he goes, if it is said, for قِيلُ نَحْنُ نَقِيسُ عَلَى مَنْ يقول الغسل على الكافر, He goes that, okay, if someone says, no, no, we're making Qiyas on the Assumption we're making analogy on the assumption that it is obligatory for the non-muslim the new muslim to basically make uh, uh ghusl that's why we're making that uh 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 analogy so then amma man yaqul bi 'adam al-wujub fa al-amr dāhin fi 'adam mani'i min qirā'at al-qur'an anna hatta 'ala qawl man yaqul wujub al-ghusl 'alayhi fa innahu la yara anna he goes "Eh, okay then fine he goes let's yani go on that example and say that yes the new muslim uh, has to make ghusl. Will his ghusl be as obligatory upon him as the obligation upon the one who is junub? And everyone will say no. He goes, even if you say it's obligatory, the obligatory nature is more severe upon the junub, no doubts whatsoever. Whereas when you say upon the other guy, the new Muslim, it's just about obligatory. I think so. That's our opinion. Blah blah blah. There's no comparison in the usul. He goes. Therefore, it is not possible. So therefore, this is Sheikh Ibn final position at the end, right there. Wa alayhi firmanu al kafir. So therefore, we can conclude that to prevent the non-Muslim from reciting the Quran until he uh, makes wudu, until he makes ghusl is weak. Because there is not a single narration, there is not, not an authentic one, not even a weak, uh, weak one, and even you can't even make analogy either. So we don't even have a weak hadith, not even an authentic hadith, and we can't even make the yes. So how on earth are you preventing this new Muslim guy from reciting the Quran and insisting that he has to make a ghusl? So what's our conclusion point? Our conclusion point is that if someone came in here now, Non-Muslim. He became Muslim. We wouldn't say to him, you have to now go make ghusl or you have to go make wudu before you recite the Quran. Okay? That's if you could recite the Quran, I don't know how he's going to recite the Quran. But you know how it is. I'll tell you something. Let me tell you something. Okay? I'll tell you something, Ajib. I mean, this is a bit scary though. So, don't freak out. But, I met a new Muslim. I mean, this guy became Muslim. uh, Like, you know, a fresh new Muslim. But he was possessed by a jinn. Okay? And he was possessed by a jinn that allowed him to write fluent Arabic. He was writing fluent Arabic. I'm telling you, man. And he was writing Arabic just like Yanni, you know? And I was saying to him, How is that possible? How do you write Arabic? He was in my lesson once. And he's there writing, writing, writing. I'm thinking, Okay. So then I went to him in the break and I had, Look, it's all Arabic. Saying what's happening here, bro. He goes. Uh, I'm. He goes. I, I. go. He goes. I was there listening, and then suddenly, you know, I'm in the zone, and suddenly I'm writing. And you know what? How he. How you described it. He described it. I don't want to give too much away because you know you might even be watching it because you know, he's a student inshallah. But uh, uh, he said that um, he can actually see the words in front of him, and then he translate. He. he what, what's the word? Uh, uh, traces. Traces the words basically. So the words appear in front of him and he traces them like that. And we'll look at it, it's good, man. It's good quality kind of stuff. But you know what's the freaky part? He's running backwards. Because he's tracing it, isn't he? So he's tracing it backwards. Because he's seeing the kind of like the template. Stencil? Stencil. So he's kind of stenciling it backwards on a piece of paper. It's a crazy word out there, bro. I'm telling you, man. It's no wonder that Pats love to talk about jinn. Because jinn are. I'm dead. It's crazy, bro. I'm telling you. Allah mustan. Okay. Anyway, right. So, um, and then and then what is the uh, next? Allah says the uh, statement on the thingy is what? Uh, the next sentence. Um, ha. Now they are allowed to pass through the mosque if there is a need. Who's they? Those who need to make ghusl. So they're in some state of impurity, some state of a problem. They need to make ghusl, but the Hanbal is saying, we allow them to pass through the masjid if there is a need. But they cannot remain therein without wudu. So if they want to pass by, okay, but stay inside, you've got to do it with wudu. You've got to do it with wudu. Okay, good. So let's look at what the Sheikh uh, uh, says. يمر به عند أي يحرم على من لزمه الغسل لبث and the reason for this and there's evidences for this okay and the first one is a statement of Allah wa wa يا أيها الذين آمنوا وأنتم حتى ولا جنوبا إلا حتى as Allah says in the Quran Nisa, verse 43 translated as oh you who believe do uh, don't come to the prayer whilst you are intoxicated until you know what you are saying. And neither the junub, the sexually impure one, okay, unless he is the one, pa- except the one passing through. Until they make ghusl. Until they make ghusl. So the real question is, okay, Shaykh says, junuban." So do not come close to it whilst you are Junub unless you are someone who is passing through. That's where they get the idea of the passing through. So don't come close to it unless you are passing through. The first question you'll ask, obviously, is what do you mean don't come close to it? The first part of the ayah is very clear, yes? Do not come close to the prayer, meaning don't even try and pray, don't try and blag it, okay? uh, Whilst you're, you're, you're drunk. Because if you're drunk, you don't know what you're saying. All right. You don't know. You don't understand. Obviously, this is the this. Uh, just to give you some context, this ayah, even though it's in the Quran, it's it's the ulama differed actually. Is its ruling abrogated or not? Of course, it's abrogated in a practical sense because if you was to act by this Quran, this ayah as it is, then it means you could go and drink. Okay. This ayah. Look at it. It says, "Oh, you who believe, do not and do not." Come close to the prayer whilst you are drunk. Whilst you are intoxicated. I.e., drink in other times, but not when it's prayer times. Correct? Is the translation drunk or intoxicated? Intoxicated. Sukara, intoxicated. Okay, but it's referring to alcohol. Yeah. Um, Okay. Until you know what you are saying. So, even it could be possible to say, drink only a little bit, so you're not fully intoxicated, and you do know what you're saying, because you do, You can't can drink quite a bit, and you, 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 know, you, you know what you're still saying. So I just want you to know, of course, that this ayah is, although it's been left in the Qur'an, so its recitation has been left. You know, when you study ulum al-Qur'an, verses of Qur'an fall into various categories. Sometimes the ayah is left, and it is recited, and the ruling remains. Or the ayah is recited, and the ruling has been taken out, so the actual ruling has been abrogated. Or the ruling is applicable, but the recitation has been lifted. So the ayah has been taken out of the Qur'an. For example, the ayatul rajam of stoning, for example, which is as Sayyidina Umar, in the hadith of Sayyidina Umar and, and Bukhari. This is the ayah that we used recite in the Qur'an. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's a long, long story. So it falls into these various categories. So this is one of the second category where the recitation reminds, remains remains But the ruling has been abrogated by Surah Al-Nisa, which will come after, well, uh, other verses in Surah Al-Nisa and later, and Surah Al-Ma'idah, of course. This is the first part of the three stages of the prohibition of alcohol. First, it came gently. So, you know what, if you want to drink, then drink, but, you know, don't be drinking in the prayer time. Don't come to prayer whilst you're still drunk. Then after that, then, of course, much more severe. And then after that, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, it's the the handiwork of shaitan. Fahla أَنْتُمُ مُنْتَهُونَ Are you not going to stop? And then, of course their companions that were still drinking they smashed all their, 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 their vessels threw away all the alcohol into tahayna into we have finished we have abstained we have abstained so the ayah is still talking about the prayer do not come to the prayer whilst you are drunk neither the junub neither the one who is junub unless he is walking past the masjid until he makes ghusl so the first question is the junub can't pray anyway صح yes the jinn can't pray anyway. So what's going on? Wa li sallama illa abr al uh, sabill. An abr al sabill Sheikh said also he goes that it's not. It doesn't mean do not pray because the abr al the one who is passing through, he's not there to pray either. Okay, he's he's not praying because he's going through. He's walking through. So li an abr yasalli fe yakunan nahu an qurbanis salah ayn nahu fi murru bi amakinha wajil masajid. He goes basically what the verse is saying is that the one who is a uh, 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 junub should not be going, uh, should not be coming to the a meaning that you mustn't go past the place of the prayer, you mustn't come close to the place of the prayer. فإن عبر فإن عبر فإن عبر so, that the verse actually is quite clear. What it's trying to say is that if you're going to walk past, no problem, but if you're junub, then don't come to the places of the prayer. This is basically what I say. Until you make ghusl. So the ayah is saying if you are Junub, you cannot come and stay in the masjid. The only exception for you is to pass it by. The only way exception for you is to pass it by. So this is the first evidence. The second evidence, so the ayah is, is indicating it very clearly. The second evidence is that the masajid are the houses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they are places of dhikr and ibadah and they are the resting places of the angels and subhanallah. If we eat uh, uh, onions or, 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 or garlic and those kind of things, then we are forbidden from staying in a masjid. M- number of hadith don't come to the masjid whilst you are smelling of garlic and onions because that is putting off the other people who are coming to the masjid. So, so, uh, uh, so, he goes, This person's allowed to pray. In fact, this person is commanded to come to the masjid whilst he is, you know, in control of what he eats and doesn't eat. So what about the one who is not allowed to pray, i.e. the junub, how can we say to him that he should come to the masjid and the guy who eats onions, he can't come to the masjid? Yani, it's obvious. Um, and also, he goes, especially when you think about the fact that the uh, uh, malaika, as the sheikh here says, they do not go into a house in which there is a junub. Okay, they do not go into the house where someone is Junub. Now I just want to say for in because they get harmed Okay by going by by going there. I just want to say a couple of things about that first of all. That the I mean he has because he's just kinda of mentioning it in passing, right? And maybe kind of explaining it by meaning. The the hadith which says that the angels do not enter a house in which there is a Junub. Someone who's impure in that way from marital relations. This hadith is weak. Okay? This hadith is weak. And um, there's no doubt about that. Okay? But then there's another hadith which is narrated by Imam Abu Dawood, okay, on the authority of Ammar bin Yasir that the angels, um, they don't come to three people the, the dead body of the non Muslim and the one who puts this kind of certain type of perfume on and a person who is in junub until he does wudu and a person who is junub until he does wudu the angels won't come close to this person all right and this hadith itself this hadith is also one which is not uh uh, there is in qita there is a break in the chain some of the scholars said this hadith is weak as well but some said it's authentic this one and we should we should operate on the basis we should operate on the basis that this hadith itself is nowhere near the same weakness as the one in the about the angels in the house. So, the strength of this is acceptable, insha'Allah, because of the number of scholars that, that made it authentic. And that Sheikh Albani made it authentic, but there are others, as I said, that criticized it. Uh, his, his student, student Sheikh Abu Ishaq Al Hawaini, one of the Muhadditeen that are alive today, he considered this hadith to be weak. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying. That in Mm. basic principle, the angels do not approach a person who is Junub. Okay? And just so that you know that you don't get confused, when we say the angels do not approach a person who is Junub, it doesn't mean that no angels go to him because there has to be angels there. for The angel of death, for example, and the recording and so on. It basically means the angels that bring the barakah. You know, the angels that bring mercy. The angels which come and they and they report back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this person is doing dhikr, this person is doing ibadah, this person is remembering you, etc. Et They're the ones who don't come. So you get mega harmed by that, basically, because it's via agency of those angels that we get most of the mercy that we get. So, it's obviously a serious issue. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's a question online, actually, about harming of angels. Yeah. You just mentioned what Yeah, so, so what, 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 when I say the harming of the angels, what I mean by that, obviously it's not physical harm, you can't physically harm the, the angel. But imagine, it's like, it's like a, 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 the best example I can give is when you come out of the haram and you arrive here, and what happens to your eyes and your heart when you arrive into a dirty, filthy area. It's like psychological torture. You see yani, uh, fahsha, you, you see yani, lakuboth, you see this kind of, you know, this uh, everything. So you feel painful. It's painful, isn't it? Right. So it's not a physical harm, and multiply that by millions upon millions. You have the most purest of the pure. They just do nothing but worship Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and they're used to absolute purity and cleanliness and ibadah. And then they see nonsense and filth and whatever. It's not their norm. It's not what they expect. It's not what they. It's not. It's not what they like. So this is the yeah, the way to to, to understand it for Allah wa'ala. Um, okay, um, if there is a need only, so not every single person who could walk through the masjid. Okay, first of all, you need to understand because they're thinking, yani, what do you mean walk past the masjid? Obviously, here our masajid are masajid, our places that you go to, so it doesn't make any sense, yeah? You don't walk past the masjid. But if you go to the Muslim countries, you'll know. If anyone's been to the Muslim countries, you'll see that the masajid that are in the populated areas, they have many, many doors, and they're shortcuts. You know, they're shortcuts from one end of the city to the other end of the city. Or, well, market, I should say. So genuinely, I mean, what was the country I was last in where that was the case? Actually, many. Egypt, uh, Morocco. East London uh, masjid. No, you have to go very far. That's a really good example. (laughs) East London London masjid, yeah. East London masjid. Quick, you little shimmy through there. Saves you going all around, all around past the Tesco's and all this, that, whatever. If you want to go to Tayyib straight through. Boom, job done. That's a good point. Well done, Shaz. Shaz you done that before, Shaz? Yeah? We used to use as a shortcut. Use <laughs> it as a shortcut, yeah? Well, that's an awesome example, Shaz. See, when Shaz is nice and calm, he gives wicked examples, you know that. So, uh, I mean, that's the case, basically. You walk through one door, whatever. And you know that the Prophet ﷺ, there's a discussion amongst the scholars because the, there were many doors to the the Masjid Nabawi, and the Prophet had them all closed except the door of Abu Bakr Siddiq. Okay, and he said, I want all of these different gates to be basically closed except the gates of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. And yani, it is too much, any yani, you know, coming and going and coming <coughs> and going. This is a very interesting point. So I just want you to know that when we have this concept of people going through, it's a real concept. Okay, people really genuinely did. But we don't. But the humbly said there has to be a need. So what kind of needs? He mentions six here. Okay, maybe he wants to uh, uh, enter from a certain door and, and sorry five and to come out of another one so that he's not seen. <laughs> he basically he wants to try and do like a little slide kind of one. So he goes in through this door. Comes out a different one so that he's not seen by anyone. So that's one of them, and or he takes a shortcut because he is because he wants a shortcut. He just wants to cut his journey time. Number two, or um, he wants to have a quick look into the masjid to see if there's anyone. If he wants if, if there's anyone who needs help, because a lot of the times people would come uh, for looking for help, and so you have a quick check in to see if there's anyone. Or the people who want sadaqa fourth or number three or four whatever. Uh, people who need sadaqah then they would also go in from certain doors of the masjid and he would and you'd and you'd go in and fifth for someone who wants to come and check in to see whether there's a circle of knowledge or something which is going on then they will see ha huh, okay I've looked in come inside seen that there's a need uh, there's a circle I'm gonna go and make khil then I'm gonna come back. So there's got to be an actual need. You can't just you know just walk in, just chill out on whatever. Okay. Um and that's why Shaykh Amin he makes a clear point. That's why I'm making a clear point. He says that the lesson to learn is that if there is no need, then even passing through the masjid whilst you are junub is something impermissible. Now, in our modern time, what's the practical reality of this? Is that if you are in a state of junub and there is an activity at the masjid and I don't know, some kind of open day or something, or maybe you forgot something in the masjid or whatever, then you've got to make sure it's a good enough reason to actually go into the masjid as you are. Otherwise, it's best to make يعني, a ghusl and be on the safe side. But if there's something that you've got no time, and you'd have, you'd have to jack it on the hook, and you want to come in quickly and grab it, that's a need. And that would be permissible. You're coming in, because it's everything which is opposite to staying in a masjid. A lubz which we're going to come to now, is when you stay there. Sit down, relax, go to sleep. Normally, you hang around, okay? So, any kind of passing through, inshallah, is okay. I'm not very comfortable with the idea of the teaching, for example, open day, helping out as a volunteer, etc., etc. Because you might come in the daytime, you see? And you might be in the morning, and you come, and you look, and you know you help out, you're here for a while, sit down, give them presentation, tea, biscuits, whatever, whatnot. So, that's spending time. So, these people should make ghusl. They should make ghusl. Okay. Um, so Imam Ahmed, Imam Ahmed himself, generally he didn't like people using the masjid for, uh, for as a pathway. And you know, I'll tell you something. Uh, uh, even though, uh, and and uh, especially as the Prophet emphasised that the masajid, You know, when you think about the prohibition of sales and transactions and trade in the masjid, All right, the prohibition. The prohibition is not yani, some super clear one from the Prophet ﷺ, other than he made it very clear that these masajid are built for dhikr and ibadah and salah. And so when people start to take liberties and use it for other things, it's like I was teaching fiqh salah in Bristol, mashallah, uh, shout out to Bristol, very nice class I had there last week and we should have some people there on- online now. We were discussing the issue of masjid and what is permissible and impermissible in principle. The question is: Is it permissible to make a multipurpose masjid? Yeah. Um, is it permissible to eat and drink in a masjid? Is it permissible to sleep in a masjid? Is it permissible for the non-Muslim to come into the masjid, etc., etc.? I want to say that you know the answer to all of these questions, or nearly all of them, is it is haram in principle, but allowed for the need. So in principle, no. It's not allowed to make a multi-purpose masjid because it's a masjid. The only reason we're making a multi-purpose masjid is because, going back to my original point that I said at the beginning of the class, Muslims give for masjids, they don't give for youth centers. They don't give for a for da'wah. They don't give for an office where someone could sit and answer the phone all day to new Muslims. They don't give for, you know, like, you know, we struggle to give yani, the imam a proper wage. We give him like minimum wage, right? We, we struggle to justify that. In our heads, and you would have thought that's the most easiest decision for Pax yeah, to give because the one the person that they need definitely is an imam, right? So you'd have thought they would give give to that person. But forget about him. We should have a mental health professional and a marriage marriage counselor in every single masjid, in every single masjid. Yani yeah, paid, right? Just to deal with that. And you know they come to you know they come to the scholars, and you know they put these scenarios in front of them, and you know to be honest, we ain't got a daily yeah, What's happening about? mental health and this it's this a serious issue you know it's like it's complicated stuff it's a specialist area it requires any you know, training and so on and so forth so khalas if you're not going to put in every single masjid then at least the main it everywhere but people are not going to raise the money for that are they they're not going to raise the money so what can we do the best that we can do is to on the cheap's add little services to the existing masjid. But you know, build another room, build a foyer, build like a balcony and whatever. I was discussing with a, with a brother the other day that he was saying the one of the masjid one of the masjid um, has, uh, 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 and you know, we should remember this for when it comes to the renovation of this masjid. They have an, observa- an observatory deck, an ob- observation deck, not observatory observation deck or room for people and guests to come in and watch the salah properly. You know, like when we have it we sit the you know, we sit the god at the back on a chair or something, yeah? And just say sit there and you know they get all bogged at, yeah, and you know, everyone comes in, as a look at them and then, you know, next person comes in within Allah but standard, isn't it? Can you imagine reading that Gora on the seat? You know what I mean? All these people just you know bowling in, Not, no one gives a monkeys and everyone just Allah Akbar, and whatever. And, you know, you know, you walk into the masjid, bit of a stinky, honey, you know. We can handle that, you know I mean? We're immune to it. You know, it's like part of the you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, don't you, bro? Right? But you know when in Qur'an you come into that scene, the only thing you can smell? Well, I can imagine it. The only thing you can smell is people's socks, people's feet, all the onions, all the curry. That's probably the only thing you can smell when you walk in. Because they have like a very, very, you know, ultimately your nose is conditioned to your environment. And you can smell these things, the you know, when you go into first time. So imagine then if there was like this kind of, you know, uh, false... Glass or an observ- observation deck at one side, where they could be brought in lounge, nice whatever, and watch the whole thing. Speakers on, sit down and observe it. And especially when we talked about last week or week before that we were saying that you know uh, 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 one thing that we need to massively increase on is to show people the sajda show people the prayer, because that really you know reminds the people that, of their of their contract that they gave to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. All of them you know. They, they agreed to the same thing that we did. okay. We all said, shahidna. Allah, we have, we have you know, we've, we've given our witness, we bear testimony that you, know, you are to be worshipped alone. And they forgot it. And we also forgot it. but Alhamdulillah, yani, someone helped us remember, right? So the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that someone helped us remember. So it's good if they can also see something and it touches something. So, I mean, look at that, right? We need to, to have, because of the nature of where we are, what we're doing, in non Muslim country, limited areas, limited funds, limited people who have got the vision to support. So we do have to have a, a, a thingy, a multi purpose masjid. And when it comes to sleeping and so on and so forth, it shouldn't happen in Masjid, it's not a hotel. But then yang yeah, some people come in, smash naked. We'd we'll be delighted if he comes to the masjid and sleeps, to be honest. We'll get one extra person in the jama'ah. you know what I mean? <laughs> We'd we'll be delighted. And food and drink. Food and drink. Otherwise we're gonna be then going to, be going to a God knows where if we don't get you know have so Yani, you know. Um, we need to do keep a control on that. Okay, so so this is interesting part now, okay? He does not remain in the masjid. Alright. So but uh, 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 but he is allowed to remain as long as he makes wudu. So this is the Junub. He makes wudu and he can remain. Now listen carefully. Junub that doesn't get rid of the state unless he does what? ghusl but if he makes wudu he can stay in the masjid so now you're learning an interesting principle first of all first of all what's the evidence that, that that's the case because to purify him he needs to make ghusl if he does wudu well he didn't purify himself he just made wudu would you agree? so is this there any proof for this? number one the companions of they would make wudu from janaba and then they would go back and stay in the masjid uh, فَكَانَ يَنَامُ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ So for example, one of them would go to the sleep in the masjid, and if he had a wet dream, and that would happen, يعني يعني احتلم, okay, ذَهَبَ ثم He would go, he would make wudu and he would come back, and then uh, go back to sleep or relax in the masjid. Um, in the references you can see an interesting discussion. You're going to find this kind of narration in the books of Athar. So for, for, first of all, we can start with that which has been narrated by Sa'eed bin Mansur in his sunan, and this is the exact wording, and by Ibn Abi Shaiba in the books of purification. The, the uh, um, specific narration is narrated on the authority of Hisham ibn Sa'ad and Zayd ibn Aslam on the authority of Atta'a ibn Yasar, who said that, I saw men from the companions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, they would sit in a masjid and they were mujniboon, they were in junub. إِذَّا but they would actually just go and make the wudu of the prayer. And they were in the masjid. They would just go and make wudu of the salah and they would remain in the masjid. Also, Hanbal ibn Ishaq and Abi Nuaim and, and Hisham ibn Sa'ad and Zayd ibn Islam, he said that the companions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, they, wudu. they would, they would uh, chill in the masjid, discussing, chatting in the masjid, and they would not have wudu. وَكَانَ so, الرَّجُلْ So this first part is just a saying, if you don't have wudu, you can show Not junub, normal guy. Yeah, it just hasn't got wudu. And there would be a person from them as well that might be junub. He goes, makes wudu, then he will go and come back into the masjid with his wudu only and carry on in the discussion with them as well. Ibn Kathir said that this is not the sahih according to the condition of Muslim. And this has also been narrated by Ibn Abi Shaybah. Actually there are a number of narrations for this point. So this is not in dispute. The companions, this was their way. So Shaykh then says, the ala annahu And this is very interesting. So this is a proof therefore that this is permissible for someone, even though he's junub, to remain in the masjid with Wudu. Because and anything that happened during his time, the Messenger's time, sallallahu alayhi wa and he did not um, make inkar. Huh? Maybe. yeah, he didn't like prohibit it, Okay, didn't speak out against it, then it is permissible if it is from the normative matters and it will be rewarded if it is from the matters of deen. Because the matters are of two types, isn't it? Either you do something wanting reward or you do something which you do not expecting anything. So here, Sheikh Usameen mentions this point because they were just chilling. They were just tr- talking. And that's not an act of ibadah. And so if they do something at the time of the Messenger of Allah and it's not an act of ibadah, then the rule is that that means it is permissible. If they do an act of ibadah, what's an ibadah? Meaning they do anything, anything which they're expecting a reward from Allah for it, and it happens at the time of the Messenger wasallam, and he doesn't say anything, then that means that, that act not only is an act of ibadah, but they get rewarded for it. Because as we said before, it is obligatory upon the Prophet to speak out against something which is haram. And so when he doesn't do it, then that's an implicit approval that is something which is allowed. Okay? So this is the first evidence. The companions used to do it. And because the Prophet ﷺ allowed them, then this is a clear, clear proof. The second evidence is very interesting. It is because wudu' Wudu' lightens the state of sexual impurity. It lightens it. This, the evidence for this is the Messenger of Allah ﷺ was asked about a man who had to make ghusl. Okay, can should he go to sleep? Is he allowed to go to sleep whilst he's still junub? So he needs to make ghusl, he's in a state of junub, janaba. Does he have to make ghusl before he goes to sleep? The Prophet ﷺ said, <laughs> uh, As long as someone makes wudu, then he can go to sleep even if he is junub. As long as one of you makes wudu, then he can go to sleep, even if he is junub. This hadith narrated by Bukhari in the chapter of Al-Ghusl. The chapter, the book of Al-Ghusl, the chapter, the sleep of the one who is junub. And a Muslim narrated this in Kitab al which is pretty cool. Okay? Alright. And then the third one, the third uh, evidence Shaykh Uthameen says at the top of page 353, he goes that wudu is actually one of the two purifiers, compared to ghusl, yeah, one of the two purifiers وَلَوْ al He goes, if there was no janaba if there was no janaba, it just made wudu. it would have lifted completely any spiritual impurity yes it has an intrinsic power and so therefore, now at the state of Janabah, you're not at zero. Because you have already lifted a state of Hadith. But now there's extra required to lift the state of Janabah. Meaning, it's like an emphasis of second point. Meaning that, well not second point, it's just basically showing that a person who is Junub and, and does something, is not like the person who is Junub and makes Wudu. He's obviously cleaner. Even though he's not allowed to pray, not allowed to recite Quran, not allowed. although I have to say to you that in the, some of the humbly, uh, positions, that if he does make wudu, it is, some of them said that he's allowed to recite Quran and do a couple of things but that's, that's getting controversial let's not get into that, but let's at least just stick to this issue here, that a person who is in Jinnab, is good he makes wudu because he will be in a state where he is lighter, okay, lighter than that alright, next section, Nishaz um, the uh, English text so now this is the beginning of the sunnah. It is a recommended, uh, let's read down the uh, Arabic, وَمَنَ غَصَّلَ مَيْتًا And this is also possible to say mayyitan, okay? فَمَيْتًا وَمَيْتًا وَمَنَ غَصَّلَ مَيْتًا أَوْ أَفَاقَ مِنْ جُنُونٍ أَوْ إِغْمَاءٍ بِلَا حُلْمٍ سُنَّة لَهُ الْغُسُلُ It is a recommended sunnah to make ghusl if A. One washes a dead body, غَصَّلَ مَيْتًا وَمَيْتًا uh, number two, one regains their intellect after losing their sanity. أو أفاق من جنون Okay, regains their intellect. I, I, you know what, we need to work with that, in that that translation. Okay, let's try and perfect that in this class. One regains their intellect after losing their sanity. أو إغماء One regains their consciousness Bila حلم And they haven't had a wet dream during that period. This is referring to the period of Junun and إغماء, by the way. Okay then that is when it is a sunnah to make ghusl. If they have a wet dream, then of course it's an obligation. That's the, that's the point there. Okay, if they have a wet dream, then they have to. But as long as they don't have a wet dream, then it is sunnah. Basically meaning a person could faint and he doesn't have to make ghusl. But if he does, it's better. And I just want to make it clear, and we'll come to this obviously next week, there is a difference there that's being made between I uh, mean uh, جُنُونَ and إِغْمَاء. Junun is loss of intellect. Okay, and 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 uh, uh sorry, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Junoon is loss of intellect, and Igma, you know, غم? in Urdu, what does a mean? Sorrow, sorrow don't you have nothing for a cloud like a Urdu, No, come on, man. huh yeah. yeah. Huh? Sad. sad. Yeah. Sad. Sad. I don't know. I, I'm just wondering whether in Urdu the sadness came because something descends upon the mind and makes it sad, because actually irma means that the mind has been kind of covered. Uh, not covered. Yani, it's like it loses itself. Yani, what I want to say is, fainting is irma, and when I think of someone who faints, it's a light temporal loss of consciousness. Whereas junoon is like a proper loss of consciousness. Consciousness. Is that possible to make that distinction? Yeah, coma. Huh? Coma. No, no, not coma. Not coma. Uh, uh, Sheikh Al himself says, for example, epilepsy, an epileptic fit. Yeah, but he. But, but that's not good enough because that's him. He's using his own ijtihad. Of course, he's a scholar. We should respect that. But that's him himself making his own statement. He goes, such as epilepsy. I want to try and understand what junoon is from the original sense. So we can see, actually there's no evidence for junoon. As far as I know, and Allah knows best, in the Quran and Sunnah, there's no, ev- we're going to come to this discussion later obviously. But there's no, there's no evidence to show that when you lose your intellect, you have to make ghusl. Or, or a sunnah to make ghusl. The evidence for junoon for losing your mind completely is based upon the evidence for ighma, for fainting. And the evidence for fainting is very well known. All of you know the evidence for that. That was because in Sahil Bukhari and all the hadith uh, collections, the Prophet ﷺ in his final days and final moments, when he was too weak to go out to lead the prayer, and he, he kept waking up and he kept fainting. So he kept waking up and fainting. Then he would wake up and then he would faint. He would say the prayer what's happening about the prayer, and I'm about to, you know, I want to go. So the first time, actually, when he, when he woke up, all right, from the faint from the fainting, the bathtub is there, and he did ghusl, ikhtasl. Okay? So he made ghusl because of the fainting. Then he woke up again, and as he tried to, then he, then he fainted. Because he had a very, very heavy fever, and he kept making it, he was in pain, he was, I mean, I'm guessing that he's, it's more likely to faint from the pain than the fever, right? Fever? Is the one that makes you faint? Yeah, More be than the pain? The pain will pain is shock, isn't it? Pain is shock, but the, the temperature and the, the fever will, will pass you out and then convulsions, isn't it? Well, we have no evidence of any convulsions. No evidence of any convulsions, the Prophet ﷺ. But I mean, you've got this combination of intense pain, intense fever, and nothing to, to bring it down. He was not taking any painkillers, no antipyretics, no anti-inflammatories. Just water being dabbed on his forehead, sallallahu And so he's obviously losing consciousness, but it's not what you would call junum. All right? But he was fainting. And he made a qusrat. So that's why the scholars said, that's why it's an obligation. And uh, uh, that's why uh, it's sunnah to do so. And if you have to, or if, and if you should do so for fainting, then what about then when you properly lose it? Do you get it now? That's the evidence for it. It's a qiyas. But I'm just trying to understand the difference between fainting and junoon. Can I just ask, when you say fainting, are you talking about someone faints and they don't remember what happened? Or someone who faints knew something was going to happen? Yeah, it it, it, it is more the second. But, in fact, in fact, igma iqma' is, you know igma gham, you know gham, which is igma from, gham is like, you know, like uh, we, we call we call a gham yeah, and in light-headedness, when so, you don't know what's happening. There, 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 there is no... Well, once you lose your consciousness, you lose your intellect. The, it's one of your... What, what you're looking at now is maybe something like... What the, she's like she's Where's Shizad's Where's he gone, new? man? Which is the what, the what? one less in our entire lives? We when he's in that yeah? The guy... guy someone has a loss in of him, intellect. intellect. He could be still conscious, but he's lost his intellect, as in his capacity. So no, no, no. So, 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 so... so, so if you lose consciousness, you lose the intellect. When you lose consciousness, you you, you lose you consciousness there's no way that you have intellect, because you're out of cold. When you lose you, can you can be it. conscious and... It, uh, you don't remember anything. Yeah, but when you can be conscious and you lose your intellect, if you have a mental illness. Some people can't remember what they did, or they have black moments, or they, you know... Mm-hmm. Why? I, I, I'm, I'm going to research that. That's good, that's good. Like that in the doctor in Australia, they were just proving that when well, you're conscious, you can remember something. Like they have some cases which they prove, like in the benches, you remember it's so like, I see that trolley, you can't, that. So you, you can't remember something. But that doesn't mean your you know, your capacity is there, so right? that means that you can actually do something. No, that's right. From the translation to the it sounds more like it's to do with like someone going crazy rather than anything to do with Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how I translated it. And now and now I'm starting to So if Sheikh if I said Sheikh al-Amin he says, okay. I, I don't know why we just we just we just I mean, I translated it like that because that's what it seems to me that Sheikh al-Amin is saying because he says Well junun zawal al-aql. the intellect goes such as epilepsy. Now in epilepsy, the aql doesn't go. Does it go? Yeah, in the petite mal. The goes or does he faint? The blood, the, you have two oh, types, okay. isn't it? Lose control and thingy, grand mal boom. No, no, no. I love that word, so grand you, mal. See, can you clarify? Are you talking about like, if you faint, there's medical causes? Neurological, cardiac,
1: yeah. Body,
0: also, petit mal is, is the person can be conscious, but they have the stress system, yeah, so he's awake. He has Petit mal. he has blackmail, he doesn't know he what doesn't what's happening. going on, and then suddenly he's back again, he goes, so, oh, I, okay, what happened? Yes, yes. Are you talking about consciousness as in awareness, or are you talking about control? You so control. consciousness is definitely igma meaning if a person faints, right. then by definition, they've lost consciousness. The debate is over the point two, about this, I think the Petit mal then, obviously, as opposed to Grand, is that he's still there. Yeah and he just doesn't know what's going on and he's lost his lost it well not i mean i've written losing, losing their sanity as i don't know if that's a bit strong or not because it's aql zawal al aql zawal means the removal of aql meaning anxiety. thingy. yeah you so you're talking about psychological yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so take insanity out aql is what intellect. Intellect. intellect we call we call it intellect we call it, we call aql intellect but what is actually aql it's like our ability to think is awareness. Yeah. You know this word intellect. I think is a poor kind of use. Yeah, akal is, you know, he's able to think, maybe to one, make decisions. One, one regains their awareness after losing their intellect. Again, intellect. Does that what you understand? Is that when you say Sancti the word I don't intellect? Think, I don't think a good word. Okay, science he doesn't here yeah, doesn't doesn't look that like I mean, good. Awareness is the word. Awareness. Aql is what differentiates us from animals, right? Yes. Different age, different age but, but animals well. are aware. No, but it's like a conscious awareness. It's something else. The ability to think. But then animals can think.
1: If so what's Aql?
0: the other way around, the, uh, the insan has intellect. The animals have awareness but no intellect. Or will they have a certain amount of intellect? but well, it depends? Yes, yeah, they have intellect as well. No, the, 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 the word Aql is the ability to make rational um Judgments, thought process, decisions, uh, which are intelligent in nature. Zawal, the the the. Yeah, control, as you said, losing control. I need to look at. And I, I, you know what? Let me let me let me spend some time looking on that. I mean, the, the you know we've got some time because we've got to focus on washing a dead body first. There. Eh? Yep. No, no. Like, like I said, let's let let me look into that a bit more. We weren't going to get to that anyway. I don't know why I just broke my, my rules and went straight into that instead. So let's talk about the washing of the dead person. It's very interesting. Okay. Come on and give someone, give me the. Uh, I'm dying now. Just give me the score someone. Yeah. Zafar, don't like it. I know Zafar's watching it. Uh, Uthman definitely is. Don't try and yeah, make it. I just come from Saudi. I don't yeah, check the score. To who? Oh, it's all over, yeah? Not good, bro. Bro, this is wrong No, it's not <laughs> No, it's not We always support the English teams, bro, in Champions League yeah. you never sat with the City fans <laughs> I sit with City fans day and night, bro I can't, I detest City fans But on Champions League nights Bro, we need English teams in there, yeah. You know? It's for the goodness of our game Okay, never mind <laughs> Never mind Khair So Um so this is the first, Shaykh says, this is the first of the Mustahab uh, washings, yeah? the recommended ones. Alright, okay, what's the evidence for this one? Well, the evidence for this is a fascinating hadith. The Prophet said, The one who washes his dead body, then, then let him make ghusl, and the one who carries his dead body, then let him make wudu. Okay, The Prophet said, the one who watches a dead person, then let him uh, uh, make ghusl, and the one who carries dead body, then let him make wudu. Now, let's talk about this. First of all, let's actually carry on with what Shaykh Hathameen says, because I'll just lose my head on this, I love this hadith. Okay, The uh, uh, the ulama said, that this hadith has a command. Yep, very straightforward. Sorry, is let him make wudu. I'm saying that in English, let him. When I say let him make wudu, do you see that as a command in the English language? Soft, isn't it? If someone says, you know, if I say, if I'm saying to you, like, if I want next man to wash himself after he washes a dead person, I could say, listen, tell him. If you wash the dead person, you must make ghusl. Then there's no doubt, is there? Because it's a quotation. So tell him, if you wash this, you must do that. Or I can respond to the question and speak about him in the third person. So, Sheikh, what happens about this person here? Whoever makes, whoever washes the dead person, then let him make ghusl. It's, in English it sounds weaker, doesn't it? to asking ghusl. Do you understand that when you say let him make usul awesome, in the English language? Depends on you saying yeah. Not fully, it's not fully there. I don't think it's fully there. He should. Uh, in, I'll tell you why, because in the Arabic language, even they have their own discussion that is coming through a present verb. فَلِيَخْتَسِلْ Okay, it's like understood to be a, a command. It's not an obvious command. It's not an ov- in English, I think it's a lot more clearer. Even in Arabic, it's not very, very clear. But anyway, the point is this: that this hadith has a command, and the, the, the basic premise of a command is obligation. Yet, though, This is a a, a statement. He says, "There's no doubt that there is an obli- there is a command in this hadith, which would normally meant mean obligation. However, there is a very important principle. This hadith is weak or it has some weakness in it at least. And a command in a weak hadith or a hadith with weakness will not mean haram. Meaning that normally if, some, if a hadith is weak and it says to you don't do this, then it would be, it's not recommended to do this because of the weakness of the hadith. It won't mean it's haram. If the hadith was authentic, then you would understand it in its full power. Don't do this, meaning it's haram if you do it. But because the hadith is weak, then the don't do this, we're going to kind of downgrade the haram to maqrood. Like, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be done. وَالْأَمْرُ إِذَا كَانَ فِي حَدِيثٍ ضَعِيفٍ And therefore, likewise, a command to do something, do this in a hadith sahih means obligation. But do this in a hadith which is weak will mean that it's not obligatory. Because a command to obligate something or to make something haram requires a very clear evidence to take away the basic state of affairs. Very, very clear evidence. And he goes that this qaida, this rule, this maxim was indicated by Ibn Muflih, who is a humbly scholar, by the way, in his book, Anukat nuqat Al-Muharrar, Fi Bab Malkif Al-Imam Al-Ma'moom. And he's very actually, you know, he himself knows, that's the first time so far in these three years that we've studied, that Sheikh Uthameen has made a, he knows himself that he's made a statement which is not very popular and not very clear. Not, Not very clear, but it's not like a very obvious statement. He's going out on a limb, which is why he's felt the need You can read this clearly. You can see his thought process. He's felt the need that I've got to refer this to someone higher. I can't, I don't have the confidence to just say, listen, if the hadith is weak and it says do this, then it doesn't mean obligation. That's a big statement to make. So he wants to relegate the kind of authority to someone else. So he says, this principle was first mentioned by Ibn Muflih in this book over there, in this chapter. He goes that when the hadith has some kind of weakness, then it's, we're now moving into the area of caution. caution So you can't obligate something or you can't prohibit something based upon being cautious. You just have to be cautious. This is his point. Anyway... Um, so, this is the first, this is the first uh, uh, evidence. This is the first evidence for the people who what? Who obligate, who... What are we talking about again? Who say sunnah to make ghusl. This is the first evidence they said it. Okay? The second evidence, the second evidence, Amara bil ghusl. It has been narrated, it has been narrated um, in the books of, of, of Athar, that Abu Huraira, he ordered the one who washed the dead body to make ghusl. Okay? الْقَوْلَ الَّذِي مَشَى عَلَيْهِ هُوَ الْقَوْلَ الْوَسْطِ وَالْأَقْرَبِ He goes, as far as I'm concerned, the statement of this author, of this author, meaning Imam al Rahmatullah, he goes, this position is balanced and the closest to the truth. That it's not obligatory, but rather it is recommended. Notice here yeah, that the Imam he said it's recommended. But the hadith that has been used for the evidence says that he must make the ghusl. Don't forget that, okay? Now, why is that? Because some of the scholars said, وَقَالَ in They said he must. They, some of the scholars said, he must make ghusl. And why And why is that? They did that based upon the two hadith that we just mentioned. The first one, which said that whoever washes the dead person, the next thing may ghusl. And second, Abu Huraira. He specifically commanded the one who had just washed a dead body to make ghusl, and he said that the um, the asal, when you say it's, uh, the the basic principle when you say you must wash is that it's obligatory. There were other scholars, however, who said no, it is not required, it's not yet, not, uh, not obligatory to, to make for him to make ghusl, and neither is it sunnah either. And what was their evidence to say none of it? First of all, they said the hadith of Abu Huraira is weak, the one that we just mentioned. Okay that this hadith is weak. Imam Ahmed, in fact, he said very famously, not just Imam Ahmed, but his very close friend, Ali ibn Madini, the teacher of Imam Bukhari, Muhaddith, the best of them. He said, There is nothing in this area that has been authentically narrated from the Prophet ﷺ. There's nothing established. There's nothing authentic established in this area. What's the area? The washing of of oneself after you wash a dead person nothing authentic in this chapter. He goes, if there's nothing established, then how can the wa'ak be legislated? And the second point and second evidence is that, that the mu'min is he is pure when he is alive and he's also pure when he's dead. So if it is not he said, so if you were to wash a person Yani, if I was to wash his arm when he's alive, and I, it's not sunnah for me to make ghusl, is it? If I was to wash his arm, so why would it, yani, be uh, uh, required for me to do so when he is dead? When he is dead, I just want to just now come back and give you some facts about this hadith, okay? And then we close. This hadith has been narrated back on page three hundred fifty-three. By Imam Ahmad al-Abu Dawood and al-Tirmidhi. Actually, by all of the ulama, I remember this hadith has been narrated except by Ibn Majah. It's not been narrated by Ibn... Sorry, actually, it has been narrated. I think maybe this is a mistake. Maybe an nasai did not see any. They said al-Khamsa illa ibn Majah. But anyway, it says Ibn Majah. Anyway, it's been narrated by a number of the authors of the Sunnah. Imam Ahmed and Imam Abu Hatim al-Razi and al-Bukhari. The reason that these names have been mentioned because these are the imams of naqd remember we discussed we discussed long time ago that there's a difference between the muhaddithin and nuqad naqid nuqad yani the highest highest level of scholarship in hadith every naqid is a muhaddith every muhaddith wishes he was a naqid okay do you understand we're talking like the very very highest the one that they're able just to look at a person or look at a hadith and say weak without even actually even realizing or seeing anything because they have a supreme skill. The muhaddith is the one who gathers hadith together. Remember, memorized 100,000. Maybe he knows them. That's a muhaddith. But the naqid is the one who's able to literally see and make hadith weak and daif because they are using them so much. So, Ahmed, Abu Hatim al-Razi, Al-Bukhari, I will add from my own list, Bayhaqi, Adar Qutni, and ibn al-Madini, ibn, uh, uh, Ali ibn al-Madini, they said that to consider this to be a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is a mistake. And na-raf'uhu to make it marfouq, to make it a statement of the Prophet ﷺ is khata. This is not the Prophet's statement. Actually, this is the statement of Abu Huraira. therefore it is mawquf This is not a prophetic hadith. Then on the other side, Ibn Al Qayyim said that this hadith has eleven ways of narration. Turoq. Eleven. And therefore he said, hadith He goes, these eleven Narrations prove that this hadith is preserved. This is a well-known and has to be an accepted hadith. It was considered authentic by, in the classic times, Ibn al-Qattan, mid-times by Ibn Hazm al-Andalusi, and modern times, sheik al-Albani, considered this hadith to be sahih. Ibn Taymiyyah said that its chain is according to the conditions of the shart of Muslim, conditions of Muslim. of ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he concludes the matter. He goes الجملة, He goes, in summary, he goes, when you consider all of the chains that it has, the worst that this hadith can be is that it is hasan. The worst that it can be is that it is hasan. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I want you to know, okay, why is this hadith so famous? Ibn Rajab al-Hambali, he put this hadith into the category of those hadith that the people of knowledge did not act by. That's a lovely statement, to be honest. Ibn Rajab put this hadith into the very small and rare category of those hadith which could be authentic, might not be, but definitely the ulama did not act by it. This hadith, this statement is so full of knowledge, it will blow your mind, you know that, okay? Because it's, so, it's saying so many things. They think it might be authentic, maybe not, not too sure, lots of difference of opinion. But i tell you what, we didn't see our scholars act by it. We didn't see their scholars act by it. We didn't see the people enforce the obligatory nature either, etc., etc., etc. We saw too many companions, yani, uh, not do it. Uh, We didn't see any of our scholars do it. Therefore, yani, insist upon the obligatory nature of washing themselves, okay? And so, therefore, it can be said that the majority of the scholars, the majority, they said that it is only recommended. Even though the hadith itself says it is obligatory, but they understood it to be uh, recommended only. Similar to what Sheikh Uthameen said. Okay? That it seems like an obligation, but it's actually not. You know who said that? The Hanafi school, the Maliki school, the Shafi'i school, the Hanbali school, the Legend of Fatwa, the Permanent Council of Fatwa in our modern times, and so on and so forth. From the uh, ulama, uh, ibn Abbas, an, Aisha, anha, Hassan al-Basri, uh, Ibrahim al-Nakhai, Imam Ahmed, I said that, Ishaq ibn Rahaway? Ibn Qudama. All of these scholars consider this to be a recommended uh, matter only. There's a narration, if you look at, if you study the Ahkam al-Janaiz, Shaykh Albani has a very nice book actually, The Rulings Concerning Janaza. When he deals with this hadith, whatever his opinion, whether the hadith is authentic or not, he himself said that, even though I think this hadith is authentic, the correct position is that it is mustahab. It is recommended only to wash, the, wash oneself if after you've washed the dead body. Which for me is a great statement because he's not known for his fiqh. Rahmatullah. And this is a big statement of fiqh. It shows that he had some fiqh. Because normally, you know, he would say hadith is sahih, therefore obligation. But he recognizes hadith is sahih, but I'm not going to say obligation. I'm going to say mustahab because that's what everyone else used to say. And the reason he said that is because there's another hadith which is narrated, which is uh, very interesting, which he himself narrates. And this hadith is what? He said that, the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, The Prophet ﷺ said, لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي غَسْلِ مَيِّتِكُمْ غُسْلٌ إِذَا غَسَلْتُمُوهِ فَإِنَّ مَيِّتَكُمْ لَيْسَ بِنَجَسٍ فَحَسْبُكُمْ أَنْ تَغْسِلُ أَيْدِيَكُمْ this is very interesting. Hadith narrated by Hakim and Al-Bayhaqi. He considered this Hadith to be um, actually a statement of Abdullah ibn Abbas. But he considers it impossible for Ibn, for ibn Abbas to make, to make this by himself. So even though he said it, he must have been told by the Prophet What we call Hadith, that its ruling is that as if it was said by the Prophet even though it was only said by him. Translation of the Hadith, that once you wash a dead body, you uh, That you, if you wash the dead body, you do not need to make ghusl. Because your deceased is not najis, it is sufficient for you just to wash your hands. I repeat this hadith. Prophet ﷺ said that you do not need to make ghusl if you wash the dead body. Because your deceased is not najis. فَحَسْبُكُمْ أَن تَخْسُلْ أَيْدِيَكُمْ It is sufficient for you to wash your hands. And there's another narration from Abdullah ibn Umar Abdullah ibn Umar which is narrated by Imam Darqutni, and it has an authentic, an authentic chain. Which he said, "Kunna Nurasil al famina minna man, minna man This is the killer statement. Job done. This is the reason why the scholars said, Ibn Omar said that we used to wash the dead person. Some of us would make ghusl, others wouldn't. Some of us would make ghusl, others wouldn't. That's a clear statement. Knockout that therefore this is an issue of istihbab, i.e. Yani recommendation, not obligation. And that's why it's a very interesting hadith, good study, okay? and these two hadith then seal the deal on it as well. So that's nice to see a hadith which says something very clearly, yet the scholars take a different ruling because of other... This is a classic example of usool, yani of fiqh. That the hadith says one thing, but supporting evidences bring the ruling down. The hadith is obligation, but other evidences suggest that the statement and the language was not to indicate obligation, but it was to indicate uh, recommendation only and Allah knows best I think it's a good point that we'll close with that inshallah and next week we'll pick up with this whole junum, uh debate A couple of points as well about um, there's a few other things there as well but anyway, yeah, that's fine take see I'm gonna start doing this now because you know you can't trust anyone to tell you I'm just gonna just do that all right alhamdulillah all right any questions online don't skank them Shaz okay they get angry afterwards and say that you only did scan to our questions really Shazad said he never scant any so they never scan to yes so when we were talking about the one who's obligated to make this or being prohibited from staying in the ministry yes before in our discussion we said that the woman who's on menstruation is not like the general that was in our discussion yes so is that where we get the rumor, people the opinion that we're, we're allowed prepared? to stay no no, no. Um, because those who uh, prohibit the menstruating woman from staying in the masjid have far more stronger individual evidences to prevent her from staying in the masjid. Actual ahadith which are direct, and I mentioned I think one or two of them in the footnotes I think uh, last week or the week before or something like that. So no, the actual prohibition upon the woman staying in a masjid, uh, in menstruation is more direct. Not using this evidence. I see exactly what you're trying to say, but no, no. We allow the woman in the, to stay in the masjid in a very, very fatwa point of view, not a fiqh one. From fiqh, it's difficult to... to, to, to you will not find any classical scholar, well, very rarely go down that line that they allow the demonstrating woman to stay in the masjid. Even modern times. Even modern times is seen as a controversial opinion. Meaning it's fatwa. It's fatwa based upon circumstances and the need of the woman and what would happen to the sisters if this that happened, blah blah blah. And the fact that it's a non Muslim country, the fact is that, you know, there's so few, there's such a danger. What would happen to the girl if she was just, you know, left adrift every you know, every month, seven days, uh, you know, eight days or whatever. So it's a fatwa position, not a fiqh one. From a fiqh one it's extremely difficult to justify a woman to stay in the masjid. Because because oh, oh, the, the the rules apply because we know that we are we we know that we are going against the grain. So whatever we can keep within the grain, we are going to. You know whatever kind of you know whatever little kind of wins we can have in the fatwa, we will have. That's that's the, that's the idea there. Shazia. Yeah. No, no okay. nothing. MashaAllah. Um. Yeah, go. Would uh, sleepwalking require sleep? So, I'm going to cover that actually, sleepwalking next week. Sleepwalking is a. Uh, is a, is a first of all, not required, because even if it does, sleepwalking comes under our text, we're talking about what is recommended to do so, not a must, meaning it's good. But um, the, the, if we were to take this literally, okay, we have to then define sleep as well. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Because when you say sleepwalking, then that means sleep. So if loss of con- if it's purely loss of consciousness, then that means that it's recommended to make ghusl every time you wake up. It's gonna be a mission. You know what I'm saying? So that's why I it's best that I get I would be more accurate next week, inshallah. Yeah. So okay. a
1: quick,
0: quick fire question just to establish the past position. So um, you're obligated. So whoever needs to make ghusl can. Quran. is a non-Muslim, obligated to make ghusl. A non-Muslim is not obligated to make ghusl. It's best if you can make him do so. And but not obligated, no evidence. And a new Muslim? Uh, same, same. Because the non-Muslim and the new Muslim is basically being put in okay. the same category here. The issue is the difference of the shahada. Non-Muslim is one who's intending to, just about to. New Muslim is the one who's just did it. We, we, we kind of discussed that in our example of the story. Remember last week we said that he actually went... And he did it before he became Muslim. That's why some said that he doesn't have to make ghusl after he becomes Muslim. I'm saying that practically, for the same purposes, it's a lot more difficult to, uh, uh, yani, to make a non Muslim whilst before Shahada make ghusl is very difficult because he's not under the law of Sharia at all. So, why would you make him do it? So, the idea, the focus is upon the new Muslim after he sh- takes Shahada. The only reason that we introduce into the discussion at all. This statement of non-Muslim is because we think, yeah, he's with us, and we're controlling the scenario. Or can he touch the Qur'an or not? Can he touch the Qur'an? He can touch the Qur'an if he has a good opinion, but he's non-Muslim, isn't he? Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? If he's a non-Muslim, okay, so let me just tell you about the non-Muslim and the Qur'an. The non-Muslim and the Qur'an is that he's, first of all, non-Muslim is not under the rulers of Sharia, of purity, etc., about the Qur'an, Okay? So he's not under the same rulings. However, the Prophet clearly and authentically stated, "Do not take the Quran to the lands of the enemy." Okay, this hadith is sahih and very, very clear. Now, the lands of the enemy has been translated as bilad al Kufar and bilad al udu and so on, so. And I can't remember the other narrations. I come across I forget now the exact wording. I need to go back and check. Okay, but the illa is clear. The reasoning is clear that they will abuse the book. They will insult the book, they will defile the book, and they will do all kinds of things to basically freak you out. So therefore, let, let them capture you, let them torture you, but don't let them yani, mentally destroy you by doing something to the mushaf in front of you. This is the idea. So going by this, the modern position of the ulama, and this is certainly my own position, is that even though the hadith says that, it is permissible to take the mushaf to the lands of the non-Muslims if we believe that we are in control of it. And the non-Muslims will respect it, etc., etc., which they largely do, which they largely do. So the idea is, is that if you believe that the non-Muslim himself is, is using it to get, you know to learn and study or to read, and so on and so forth, then there is no clear evidence to prohibit him from touching it. However, however, of course it's safer because of the Khilaf on the issue when he is Muslim. It, uh, 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 it, because of the difference of the opinion, it's best that you give them only their translation. Their translation. But I will not obligate it, because I'm fully aware of the power, when giving da'wah, of giving someone one of those cheap paperbacks, which is just English text, versus something which is hardback, which is Arabic, and it kind of leaves, a, leaves, a, leaves a, an impression, and it means that you're taking it seriously. But there's, that's, that's a double-edged sword as well. You know, if a non-Muslim re- sees lots of Arabic... It can be a bit off-putting as well. I'm going into a foreign kind of religion. It's a bit kind of otherworldly. This. It's all a bit kind of mysticky. Kind of, you know. Whereas if he just sees English, pure English, maybe he feels more comfortable. Yeah, and it's a political point that I don't. You know, Allah. Yeah. Uh, so if the woman has finished her menses but hasn't made it back home to make wudhu, then there is a class in the mosque for the ruling of making wudu and staying for the class applied to her. Uh, no. If she makes wudu, it definitely anyone who makes wudu, even the one in menstruation, even the one in Junub, even in anyone, will lighten their state. We believe that. Anyone. Okay? But uh if she is allowed to come to the masjid according to the normal conditions that I mentioned. She's allowed, in my opinion, to Make, come to Masjid. Making wudu after carrying a dead person, does that mean carrying the coffin or the body itself? It means carrying the coffin. Because their ilmah, they differed. I remember reading the Sharh of Shaykh Abd al-Muslim Al-Abad, hafizahullah in his commentary to the Sunan of Abu Dawood, knocking, talking about this hadith. And they were discussing what's the illah. Is the illah, the Sharia reason for this ghusl or this wudu' because of actual things that they can pick up from the dead body? So when they're washing it, is the reason the Prophet ﷺ said this because of something you can pick up from the dead body or not? Because you're going to be using cloth and stuff, so what's the issue there? And Sheikh Abdul Muslim, he said that the illah is unknown. It's a purely a worship matter. It's not something we can rationalize. And I'm, one, I'm thinking about that, and maybe, maybe maybe that's the easy way out. It is the easy way out, just to say, this is not something we can't rationalize, and it should be done. And I think I prefer that, because the more I think about it, is it really? I don't know, I don't know. So the answer to this is, what was the question again? It the kind I'm of about. I don't know what happens when I start talking. All the body oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, therefore, I believe that it doesn't have to be because if, if the person is indicating maybe it's the actual physical contact with the body and so on and so forth. And I would support that if there was some kind of illa that could be clear. But the illa is not clear. Therefore, I would apply it to the carrying of the body as well. Last question. Uh, coffin as well. Last question. Would you enjoyed it then, didn't you you enjoyed saying that didn't you Shaz go I on. Did, yeah. that means it'll it well, <laughs> <laughs> will Pure Pesa be available online for people outside the UK Pure Pesa at the moment won't be online but make lots of du'a oh, we looking at a massive massive project this year to try and do that online thing Londoners whoever is there make sure you're on time on Friday it is virtually sold out because I've seen the uh, attendance figures I think there's like about a few places left and in two hours the price goes up as well so will be a pack and make sure you get it cheap Zakmullah Khair Subhanakallahu wa bihamdulikshadu wa la ilayna wa astaghfirullah wa atubu wa alaikum rahmatullahi wa